A startling phenomenon has developed at the San Francisco County Jail. At the center of the storm, one of the most loathsome bits of human scum ever to stain the pages of American criminal history. His name is Richard Ramirez, California's most cowardly mass killer, a devil known as the Night Stalker. Hey everybody, this is Kimberly with Breadcrumbs and Bloodhounds, and we are going to be talking about Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Now look, I, I gotta tell you this. I mean, I know I'm jumping ahead, but this is so cotton-picking funny to me. So apparently Ramirez planned a couple of escapes. I mean, he never intended to stay in prison. And his first escape plot was foiled on September 21st of 93, when he was escorted back to San Quentin after appearing in a San Francisco court on a murder rap. A correction officer used a wand to scan Ramirez's body, and the metal detector went off near his buttocks. An x-ray later revealed that he had stuffed a handcuff key inside his rectum, along with a ballpoint pen, a syringe, and strangely, a sticker that read, I love chocolate. I don't know why, but that is so funny to me. I love chocolate. Stuffed up your bum. What the heck? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> They're so stupid. It's so funny. So I, I guess you get to see how completely juvenile I can be sometimes. But hey, you know, when you're talking about dark matter, you gotta find humor where you can. That is reported by the New York Post. Written by Jamie Schramm, or Schramm, and that was March 10th of 2014. The Night Stalker plotted two prison escapes. Okay, so I think it's only fair to warn you that this is some heavy material. Some of it may be disturbing. And if you are squeamish, then this is not the show for you. And I want to give a shout out to some long distance friends of mine. Uh, Mr. Esten and his lovely bride, Miss Bailey Klutz, and their new pupster, Annie. We all work together, and they have moved on, and I miss them. Women in California breathed a sigh of relief when this mass murderer was caught. But now in a bizarre twist, many are begging for his attention and his affection, the death row Romeo. They hate you. I'm gonna kill you. The horror began in June 1984. Los Angeles was under siege. Death waited in the dark at the hands of a man they called the Night Stalker. After a 14-month reign of terror, he was finally caught. It was only then that his true identity was discovered. His name, Richard Ramirez. Oh, don't run away. You're gonna die. Patrols and warned residents to lock their doors and windows and increase indoor lighting. The Night Stalker killed at least 13 times, 13 people who were awakened in the night to face death. At least 15 others survived his brutal attacks. In the sweltering spring and summer of 1985, this West Texas drifter descended on the California coastline like a deadly disease. For months, under the cloak of darkness, he slipped through windows. He raped, mutilated, murdered. His modus operandi was usually the same. 
First, he would shoot any men in the house while they lay sleeping in their bed. Then he would rape and murder the women, raping even the children. On November 7, 1989, Richard Ramirez is sentenced to die in the gas chamber 19 times. He had a dark heart and liked to see what scared people. The Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, terrorized Southern California neighborhoods in the 1980s, savagely murdering 13 people before the serial killer was caught. Ramirez, sentenced to death, was imprisoned at San Quentin. Last week, he died of liver failure. A serial killer comes about by circumstances and like a, a recipe, poverty, drugs, child abuse. These things, you know, are, contribute to a person to a person's frustration and anger and uh, at some point in life he explodes. As far as Satan is concerned I, I believe uh, in a malevolent being. Uh, his description eludes me but I, I have felt powers that are evil. I don't care about myself really. You know, I don't care about what happens to me. I never did really. As Richard Ramirez is led to prison on that November day, he has one final comment for the media. Big deal. That's always going with the territories. I'll see you in Disneyland. And there you have it, straight from the horse's mouth. That was Richard Ramirez's voice that you heard explaining that he feels like there's a recipe to creating a murderer serial killers, monsters. He said poverty, drugs, child abuse, well, they all contribute to frustration and anger until eventually someone just explodes. Thank you all for joining me. This is Kimberly with Breadcrumbs and Bloodhounds, and this is my second case. I thought that the Charles Whitman, the UT sniper case that I covered, my debut case, that that case bothered me. But oh my gosh, this dude was so twisted and it is so disturbing. Oh my gosh, what the heck is wrong with these women who fawned for his affection? His little groupies dressed in lace stockings and oh my, who the heck are you people? What the heck? I am absolutely speechless. I just cannot understand why any woman who knows that he tortured, he raped, he sodomized not only women but children and yet he had groupies? Are you kidding me? Now true to form we are going to go over the Wikipedia account and then we're going to go back and we're going to look at that account in comparison to some research that I have done and see if there's anything that we need to correct or that we would like to elaborate on to better understand what was going on in the life of this guy that turned him into such a monster. Now again, when we think about this recipe that Richard Ramirez said is the making of a murderer, the poverty, the child abuse, and how that, that adds to frustration and anger and eventually an eruption. Well, not everybody erupts. Some don't. So what is the difference between those who do and those who don't? 
Is it as simple as or maybe as complicated as a genetic makeup that some just fold more easily than others to their demons? So let me remind you, I am not a doctor. I don't have a PhD. I'm not a therapist, criminologist, just an old country gal who is intrigued with true crime, who has had a brush with true crime to some degree, not to the degree of these cases that I'm covering. I've had to fight my demons and I've had to fight my way out and I've had to find my own path in life that I can actually be proud of. All right, so let's dig in to the Wikipedia account of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Ricardo Leiva Munoz Ramirez was born February 29, 1960, ultimately died June 7, 2013. He was known as Richard Ramirez, an American serial killer, rapist, and burglar. His highly publicized home invasion crime spree terrorized the residents of the greater Los Angeles area and later the residents of the San Francisco area from June of 84 until August of 85. Prior to his capture, Ramirez was dubbed the Night Stalker by the news media. He used a wide variety of weapons, including handguns, knives, a machete, a tire iron, and a hammer. Ramirez, who claimed to be a Satanist, never expressed any remorse for his crimes. The judge who upheld Ramirez's 19 death sentences remarked that his deeds exhibited cruelty, callousness, and viciousness beyond any human understanding. Ramirez died of complications from B-cell lymphoma while awaiting execution on California's death row. Now, in his early life and education, Ramirez was born in El Paso, Texas on February 29th of 60, the youngest of Julian and Mercedes Ramirez's five children. His father, Julian, a Mexican national and former Juarez, Mexico policeman, who later became a laborer on the Santa Fe Railroad, was prone to fits of anger that often resulted in physical abuse. As a 12-year-old, Richard, or Richie, as he was known to his family, was strongly influenced by his older cousin, Miguel, also known as Mike Ramirez, a decorated U.S. Army Green Beret combat veteran who often boasted of his gruesome exploits during the Vietnam War. He shared Polaroid photos of his victims, including Vietnamese women that he had raped. In some of the photos... Mike posed with the severed head of a woman he had abused. Ramirez, who had begun smoking marijuana at the age of 10, bonded with Mike over joints and gory war stories. Mike taught his young cousin some of his military skills, such as killing with stealth. Around this time, Ramirez began to seek escape from his father's violent temper by sleeping in a local cemetery. Ramirez was present on May 4th of 73 when his cousin Mike fatally shot his wife, Jessie, in the face with a 38 caliber revolver during a domestic argument. After the shooting, Ramirez became sullen and withdrawn from his family and peers. Later that year, he moved in with his older sister, Ruth, and her husband, Roberto, and obsessive peeping Tom. 
who took Richie along on his nocturnal exploits. Ramirez also began using LSD and cultivated an interest in Satanism. Mike was found not guilty of Jessica's murder by reason of insanity and was released in 77 after four years of incarceration at the Texas State Mental Hospital. His influence over Ramirez continued. The adolescent Ramirez began to meld his burgeoning sexual fantasies with violence, including forced bondage and rape. While still in school, he took a job at a local Holiday Inn where he used his passkey to rob sleeping patrons. His employment ended abruptly after a hotel guest returned to his room to find Ramirez attempting to rape his wife. Although the husband beat Ramirez senseless at the scene, criminal charges were dropped when the couple who lived outside of state declined to return to testify against him. Ramirez dropped out of Jefferson High School in the ninth grade. At the age of 22, he moved to California, where he settled permanently. The murders, April 10th, 84. Ramirez murdered nine-year-old Mia Luong in the basement of the hotel where he was living in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. He raped and beat the girl before stabbing her to death and hanged her body from a pipe. This Ramirez's first known killing was not initially identified as being connected to the subsequent crime spree. In 2009, Ramirez's DNA was matched to a sample obtained at the crime scene. In 2016, officials disclosed evidence of a second suspect identified through a DNA sample received from the scene who is believed to have been present at the murder. Authorities have not publicly identified the suspect described as being a juvenile at the time and have not brought charges due to the lack of evidence. On June 28th of 84, 79-year-old Jeannie Vincal was found brutally murdered in her apartment in Glassell Park, Los Angeles. She had been stabbed repeatedly while asleep in her bed, and her throat slashed so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. Ramirez's fingerprint was found on a mesh screen he removed to gain access through an open window. On March 17th of 85, Ramirez attacked 22-year-old Maria Hernandez outside her home in Rosemead, California, shooting her in the face with a 22 caliber handgun after she pulled into her garage. She survived when the bullet ricocheted off the keys she held in her hands as she lifted them to protect herself. Inside the house was her roommate, 34, who heard the gunshot and ducked behind a counter when she saw Ramirez enter the kitchen. When she raised her head, he shot her once in the forehead, killing her. Within an hour of the Rosebead home invasion, Ramirez pulled 30-year-old Sai Loon Veronica Yu out of her car in Monterey Park, California, shot her twice with a 22 caliber handgun, and fled. She was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. The two murders and attempted third in a single day attracted extensive coverage from news media, who dubbed the curly-haired attacker with bulging eyes and wide-spaced, rotting teeth, the walk-in killer, and the valley intruder. Now, I want to interject something here. Segment 9 of Dissecting the Life and Legacy of Charles Whitman, when I introduced my next case, which is the Night Stalker, I brought up ACDC. Why did ACDC have to cancel some of their concerts 
because of this guy, because of a serial killer. Well, one thing that the Wikipedia account does not include, and I want to go ahead and include it now. And we're just going to jump into the middle of this article that can be found at ultimateclassicrock.com. And it's the history of ACDC and the Night Stalker murders. Another murder in the city of Rosemead on March of 17th, 85. It arrived amid this season of fear and it took on a special meaning for ACDC and its fans after the killer left behind a hat bearing the band's logo. And things only worsened when a childhood friend of Ramirez said that he had always been a huge fan of ACDC. Well, by the end of the decade, Ramirez had been sent to California's death row in connection with 13 brutal killings, but not before inflicting untold collateral damage on ACDC. I thought it was a joke at first, Malcolm Young told VH1's Behind the Music. I mean, we just thought, this is crazy. I mean, why are we connected anyway? Well, ACDC had a similarly titled track on its Breakthrough Highway to Hell album from five years before. It's not called Night Stalker. It's called Night Prowler. And it's about things that you used to do when you were a kid, like sneaking into a girlfriend's bedroom when her parents were asleep. Reports have suggested that Richard Ramirez, the so-called Night Stalker, accused of murdering 15 people in California, was influenced by the ACDC song, Night Prowler. I mean, you get it, your inspiration from something. In the case of that song, it's been completely taken out of context. The story come from, mainly there was a guy that used to steal underwear off people's laundry lines. And that inspired, well, it wasn't Brian that wrote the list, it was a guy, Bon Scott, since dead. That inspired him to go out and write a song about that. That's what Night Prowler's about. That's what Night Prowler is about. ACDC, some people say that stands for Antichrist Devil's Child. Does it? It came from the back of my sister's sewing machine. <laughs> sewing machine? Yeah. You know, it's on any electrical appliance. It's power. It just means power. But still, as the mysterious, shockingly violent spree continued, those two tenuous links to ACDC became like catnip to a media hungry for a scapegoat to make sense of senseless crimes. When it was confirmed by a boyhood friend that Ramirez followed ACDC, well, it turned into headlines. ACDC music made me kill at 16, the Night Stalker admits. Mass killer driven by rock and roll devil worship and punk metal. Well, to reiterate what we just heard the band say, they chose the name after they saw those initials on their sister Margaret's sewing machine. It actually stands for alternating current, direct current, an electrical term. They thought it was a great symbol for the raw power that they hoped this band would possess. Well, it's been called everything since, you know, the meaning of the letters, Malcolm Young lamented. You tell them a sewing machine story and they're still thinking, yeah, no, there's, there's more to this. Even Ramirez himself, as improbable as it might seem, felt the story cycle had swung out of control. The world had been fed many lies about me, Ramirez later said. I have read very few truths. He added that serial killers are a product of their times and these are bloody, thirsty times. But anyway, after the infamous hat was found... 
Concerts were canceled as the controversy grew. Soon ACDC was a target of the Parents Music Resource Center, which again focused on a supposed link between their music and Satanism. The press assumed an awful lot, Carrillo said, and the press put a lot more to the significance of the hat than the homicide investigators. Rock journalists leapt to ACDC's defense, though to little avail. It's very hard for me to swallow the widely printed assertion that their very name is some form of anagram for Antichrist, Billboard Sam Sutherland said at the time, adding that he always thought the band's antics were completely tongue-in-cheek. In the meantime, I mean, all ACDC could do was just keep playing. And so they did, but not without the occasional rueful look back. I don't know why they zeroed in on us. Angus Young added, I could never see those connections myself. All right, back to the Wikipedia account. On March 27th of 1985, Ramirez entered a home that he had burglarized a year earlier in Whittier, California at approximately 2 a.m. and he killed the sleeping Vincent Charles Zazara, age 64, with a gunshot to his head from a 22 caliber handgun. Zazara's wife, Maxine Lavinia Zazara, age 44, was a Awakened by the gunshot, and Ramirez beat her and bound her hands while demanding to know where her valuables were. While he ransacked the room, Maxine escaped her bonds and retrieved a shotgun from under the bed, which was not loaded. The infuriated Ramirez shot her three times with the 22, then fetched a large carving knife from the kitchen. He mutilated her body by stabbing her several times then gouged out her eyes and placed them in a jewelry box, which he left with. The autopsy determined that the mutilations were post-mortem. Ramirez left footprints from a pair of avia sneakers in the flower beds, which the police photographed and cast. This was virtually the only evidence that the police had at the time. Bullets found at the scene were matched to those found at previous attacks, and the police realized a serial killer was at large. Vincent and Maxine's bodies were discovered by their son, Peter. On May 14th of 85, Ramirez returned to Monterey Park and entered the home of Bill Doi, D-O-I, uh, 66, and his disabled wife Lillian, 56, surprising Joy in his bedroom, Ramirez shot him in the face with a 22 semi-automatic pistol as Joy went for his own handgun. After beating the mortally wounded man into unconsciousness, Ramirez entered Lillian's bedroom, bound her with thumb cuffs, then raped her after he had ransacked the home for valuables. Bill Doy died of his injuries while in the hospital. On the night of May 29th, 85, Ramirez drove a stolen Mercedes-Benz to Monrovia, California and stopped at the house of Mabel Ma Bell, 83, and her sister Florence Nettie Lang, 81. Finding a hammer in the kitchen, he bludgeoned and bound the invalid Lang in her bedroom, then bound and bludgeoned Bell before using an electrical cord to shock the woman. After raping Lang, he used Bell's lipstick to draw a pentagram on her thigh as well as on the walls of both bedrooms. 
discovered two days later both women were found alive but comatose. Bell later died of her injuries. The next day, Ramirez drove the same car to Burbank, California, and sneaked into the home of Carol Kyle, 42. At gunpoint, he bound Kyle and her 11-year-old son with handcuffs, then ransacked the house. He released Kyle to direct him to where the family's valuables were. He then sodomized her repeatedly. Ramirez also repeatedly ordered her not to look at him, telling her at one point that he would cut her eyes out. He fled the scene after retrieving the child from the closet and binding the two together again with the handcuffs. On the night of July 2, 1985, he drove a stolen Toyota to Arcadia, California and randomly selected the house of Mary Louise Cannon, 75. After quietly entering the widowed grandmother's home, he found her asleep in her bedroom. He bludgeoned her into unconsciousness with a lamp and then repeatedly stabbed her using a 10-inch butcher knife from her kitchen. She was found dead at the crime scene. On July 5th of 85, Ramirez broke into a home in Sierra Madre, California, and bludgeoned 16-year-old Whitney Bennett with a tire iron as she slept in her bedroom. After searching in vain for a knife in the kitchen, Ramirez attempted to strangle the girl with a telephone cord. He was startled to see sparks emanate from the cord, and when his victim began to breathe, he fled the house believing that Jesus Christ had intervened and saved her. Bennett survived the savage beating, which required 478 stitches to close the lacerations to her scalp. On July 7th of 85, Ramirez burglarized the home of Joyce Lucille Nelson, 61, in Monterey Park. Finding her asleep on her living room couch, he beat her to death using his fists and kicking her in the head. A shoe print from an AVS sneaker was left imprinted on her face. After cruising two other neighborhoods, he returned to Monterey Park and chose the home of Sophia Dickman, 63. Ramirez assaulted and handcuffed Dickman at gunpoint, attempted to rape her and stole her jewelry when she swore to him that he had taken everything of value. He told her to swear on Satan. On July 20th of 85, Ramirez purchased a machete before driving a stolen Toyota to Glendale, California. He chose the home of Leela Needing, 66, and her husband Maxon, 68. He burst into the sleeping couple's bedroom and hacked them with the machete, then killed them with shots to the head from a 22 caliber handgun. He further mutilated their bodies with the machete before robbing the house of valuables. After quickly fencing the stolen items from the needing residents, Ramirez drove to Sun Valley. At approximately 4.15 a.m., he broke into the home of the Covananth family. He shot the sleeping Chanarong Covananth in the head with a 25 caliber handgun, killing him instantly, then repeatedly raped some kid Covananth, beat and sodomized her. He bound the couple's terrified eight-year-old son before dragging some kid around the house to reveal the location of any valuable items which he stole. During his assault, he demanded that she swear to Satan that she was not hiding any money from him. 
On August 6th of 85, Ramirez drove to Northridge, California, broke into the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. He crept into the bedroom, startled Virginia, 27, and shot her in the face with a 25 caliber semi-automatic handgun. He then shot Chris in the temple and attempted to flee. Chris fought back while avoiding being hit by the two more shots during the struggle before Ramirez managed to escape. The couple survived their injuries. On August 8, 85, Ramirez drove a stolen car to Diamond Bar, California and chose the home of Sakina Abaweth, 27, and her husband, Elias Abaweth, 31. Sometime after 2.30 a.m., he entered the house and went into the master bedroom. He instantly killed the sleeping Elias with a shot to the head from a 25 caliber handgun. He handcuffed and beat Sakina while forcing her to reveal the locations of the family's jewelry and then brutally raped and sodomized her. He repeatedly demanded that she swear on Satan that she would not scream during his assaults. When the couple's three-year-old son entered the bedroom, Ramirez tied the child up and then continued to rape Sakina. After Ramirez left the house, Sakina untied her son and sent him to the neighbors for help. Now I'm going to go off the grid here for just a second. This is one of the most disturbing accounts. One of his more heinous acts of brutality and just evil. And I want to read to you now about this incident off of the website Murderpedia. On August 8th, he drove to the town of Diamond Bar far enough east of L.A. that they wouldn't be expecting him. He selected the home of Elias and Sakina Abaweth, their three-year-old boy and infant son, which, according to Philip Carlo's book, was 10 weeks old. The stalker gained entrance by a sliding glass door and went straight to Elias in Sakina's bedroom. He walked over to the bed and shot Elias to death with the 25 automatic. Then he jumped over Elias's body and straddled Sakina, punching her in the face and the stomach. He said, don't scream, and called her a very unsavory dame. And he said, or I will kill your kids. And then he slapped her again. And he kicked her with such ferocity that she landed on the floor. He said, where's the jewelry? And he slammed his fist into her face when she didn't answer fast enough. Finally, he found a briefcase with her jewelry. He said, don't you make a MF in sound. You understand me? I am obviously paraphrasing here. She said, I, sw I swear to God, I won't scream. He slammed his fist into her face again. He says, no, you swear to Satan. He ripped off her nightgown and her nursing bra. And he forced her to give him oral sex. That he raped her and he sodomized her. Excited by her pain and humiliation. Well, she could hear her young son crying in the next room. She said, please let me go to him. He said, swear on Satan, you won't scream. So she did, as he demanded. And she went into the child's bedroom to calm him down. And when the child went back to sleep, the stalker dragged her in the bedroom, punching and slapping her. He was raping her again. And the little boy opened the bedroom door and walked in. The stalker tied the boy to the bed and put a pillow over his head to shut him up. Sakina tried to help her son, but he punched her. 
It was only after he raped and sodomized her again that he let her comfort her son. And then he went to the refrigerator and helped himself to some melon. Finally, he left, taking all of their valuables with him, stashed in a pillowcase, leaving her widowed, handcuffed, and nude. After he left the home, Sakina untied her son and sent him to the neighbors for help. In Philip Carlo's book, the neighbor said that when the little boy came over, he asked for ice cream. I am so reminded of a book that I read. The book was called Follow the River, and it was about the Native Americans who captured some white women, and one was pregnant and had small children, and one of them was crying. The mosquitoes were thick, and he was crying because the mosquitoes were biting, and it said that she pulled up her dress and just made her legs available for the mosquitoes to feast on her to save her son. Any sympathies I may have ever had in my heart for this warped man who I believe with all my heart was warped as a kid, I have none for him after this. None. Nothing. Zilch. And I just don't get these women. Well, some of them wanted to take care of him. They wanted to kind of be like mama and see if they couldn't help him. The poor little wounded boy still inside of him. His family, which we've talked about some of this, but his family was poor. His father, Julian, was a Mexican national who worked on the Santa Fe Railway. And his mother, Mercedes, worked mixing chemicals at a boot factory with no mask, no protection. And a lot of the workers complained about being sick, and some of them had children with birth defects. Now, in spite of both of his parents working, they still struggled financially. In times of stress, Julian would take his frustrations out upon his children, beating them without mercy. At six years of age, Richie witnessed his father give his elder brother, Reuben, a particularly savage beating. During childhood, when he was two years old, he had a very serious head injury. When a large dresser fell on top of him in the family home, almost killed him, causing a wound on his forehead so severe, it needed 30 stitches to close it. Then at five years of age, he was struck on the head by a swing at a local park and was knocked unconscious. And it was after this that he started to suffer from grand mal seizures. And eventually he was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. He was six years old. And this led to him being excluded from sports at school and contributed to an early sense of alienation from his peers. But his epileptic fits stopped sometime during his early teens. But he never reconnected with his school friends. But look, he's not the only human being on the face of this planet to have a rough childhood. So what is the deal with these women? What is this phenomenon known as hybristophilia? They would go to the jail to visit him and they would get in fights. I love him. 
this one girl who was, I don't remember what talk show she was on, she was talking about how he supposedly had sex with a woman's eye socket after he plugged her eyes out, and then she giggled about it. And then she said, well, these people were all going to die sometime anyway. Who are you? If I'm not mistaken, this is the same girl who wrote him who said that she too was a Satanist. She never came out during the day and she slept in a coffin. During court, while she was sitting with the other groupies, she got sexually aroused by all that blood. She fantasized about them having intimate relations over the bodies of these people that he murdered said he did it all for the glory of Satan and he was going to be in Satan's court yet he denied any of it I wonder what Satan felt about that if you're going to deny me well I feel pretty sure of this they've had a long time to talk about it we're going to have to go over this phenomenon because this is not the first mass murderer or serial killer who developed groupies those who decided that they were in love with them. If you as a male are listening to this and thinking, cool, I'll go out and rape someone, kill someone, and I'm going to have all kinds of fans, let me remind you that Richard Ramirez died in prison alone. And he had not seen anybody for several years. And his wife, oh yeah, spoiler alert, Someone married this monster when he was in prison. Decided to divorce him after the murder of the nine-year-old was tied to him. That's speculation. They don't know for sure. They just know that they, the couple separated well before his death. Even though she had professed originally that upon his execution, she was going to commit suicide. That is how much in love she was with him. And then she just up and stops seeing him and then fades into oblivion. So I guess she had a change of heart. So he died alone with nobody. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound too glamorous to me. Okay, so this is going to wrap up segment one of the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Be sure and join me for segment two. Then we'll finish out the Wikipedia account. And then we're going to add a little bit of information that I have found through reading a couple of books. For example, what did Sean Penn have to say to the Night Stalker? Whenever he was incarcerated, got himself into a little bit of a scrap. And the Night Stalker asked for his autograph. And then he wrote him a short note. Well, Sean Penn replied. I wonder what he said. Well, just so happens, I know what he said. Segment two, we'll find out. In his final interview, given just months before his death, he spoke of his admiration for the actor Ted Levine, who played the part of the serial killer Buffalo Bill, who kidnaps and skins women in the 91 thriller Silence of the Lambs. Well, what did Ted Levine have to say about... Mr. Ramirez admiring him. Well, we will talk about that as well. But we're going to kick off segment two by discussing this phenomenon of these women attracted to the bad boys. This is Kimberly with Breadcrumbs and Bloodhounds, and I will see you in segment two.
Welcome back, everybody. This is Kimberly, Breadcrumbs and Bloodhounds. This is segment two of two, Richard Ramirez and the Night Stalker. Hybristophilia is a paraphilia in which sexual arousal, contingent upon being with a partner known to have committed an outrage, cheating, lying, known infidelities or crime, such as rape, murder, or armed robbery. In popular culture, this phenomenon is also known as Bonnie and Clyde syndrome. Many high-profile criminals, particularly those who have committed atrocious crimes, receive fan mail in prison that is sometimes amorous or sexual, presumably as a result of this phenomenon. In some cases, admirers of these criminals have gone on to marry the object of their affections in prison. Hybristophilia is accepted as potentially lethal. The reason why some people do this is unknown, but some speculations have been offered. Some believe they can change a man as cruel and powerful as a serial killer. Others see the little boy that the killer once was and seek to nurture him. A few hope to share in the media spotlight or get a book or movie deal. Then there is the notion of the perfect boyfriend. She knows where he is at all times and she knows he's thinking about her. While she can claim that someone loves her, she does not have to endure the day-to-day -day issues involved in most relationships. There's no laundry to do, no cooking for him, and no accountability to him. She can keep the fantasy charged up for a long time. Some mental health experts have compared infatuation with killers to extreme forms of fanaticism. They view such women as insecure females who cannot find love in normal ways or as love-avoidant females who seek romantic relationships that cannot be consummated. One of the most infamous examples of hybristophilia is the large number of women attracted to Ted Bundy after his arrest. He often drew scores of women at the jammed courtrooms of his trials each day. Bundy allegedly received hundreds of love letters from women while he was incarcerated. Jeffrey Dahmer, a serial killer, is said to have had amorous women sending him letters, money, and other gifts during his time in prison. Serial killer Richard Ramirez married a female groupie in prison who had written him over 75 letters. During his trial, dozens of women flocked to the courtroom to catch a glimpse of him. The phenomenon of Charles Manson groupies is also an example of hybristophilia. Terrorists such as Anders Bering Breivik, and Jokartsar Nave have also been the objects of hybristophilia. And there you have it. Hybristophilia explained according to Audiopedia on YouTube. I have included that link in my show notes if you want to hear their entire explanation. I only shared in part and partial just what was really kind of pertinent to this podcast. And as puzzling as it is to me, I mean, you heard what she said in the beginning that this is potentially lethal for women who get involved with these men. I mean, let's be honest. I understand to some degree the whole opposites attract I mean, who didn't crush on Johnny Castle, you know, in Dirty Dancing? Or I didn't personally, but I'm sure some did, on John Bender in The Breakfast Club. And then, of course, there's the infamous Danny the Greaser 
in Greece, who Sandy, the good girl, was so hardcore in love with. Of course, she fell in love with a different Danny than she came to know when she was in school, but still the attraction remained, even enough to compromise her good girl persona and cross over to the dark side, if you will. That's a little dramatic, but you get what I'm saying, right? This is the stuff that makes up our romantic novels that I will tell you straight up truthfully, I've never read a romantic novel in my life, but I know there is a huge market for it. Now, before we get back to the Wikipedia account of Richard Marison, the Night Stalker, I do want to talk a little bit more about this phenomenon called hybristophilia. This can grip a woman, I suppose, for various reasons. And there is a case of a teenager named Rachel Berkheimer who fell into the wrong crowd and got tangled up with a couple of bad boys who, in the end, paid the ultimate price she paid with her life. You will hear women in movies say things like, I don't trust myself with you talking to a man who has kind of got the bad boy character going on because she knows, she knows better. She knows that to do so is going to come at a price. So let's listen to just a little bit of the story of Rachel Berkheimer. Every time you hear the beep, that is just me taking material out that we don't really need to have for the podcast. But I do recommend if you want to hear the entire story, follow the links in my show notes and listen to her entire story. I know that her parents would not want her death to be won in vain, and I'm sure it is not, but this is just another way that her death can be honored as a warning to us as women not to get entangled in these affairs that can cost us our lives. Stunningly, while still a student in high school, Rachel would become devastated by the loss of six of her good friends, each of them victims of unfathomable tragedy, from suicide to drowning to accidental shooting. She wasn't her happy, bubbly self, and she was suffering tremendously from grief. The flame of happiness that once burned so brightly in Rachel's life was now snuffed out. It was truly like a transformation that was happening before our eyes. It was, you know, the Rachel that I knew was very much changing in her priorities and in her level of joy that really marked her character and who she was. This beautiful young woman, once so full of ambition, she posted her weekly goals on a bedroom mirror, had shut down, closed herself off from her family. Rachel now navigated through life in a haze of despair. She left school, began dabbling in drugs, and found herself immersed in a circle of troublemaking new friends. One in particular would profoundly impact her life. They'd steal drugs, they'd sell some of them, and use most of it. They had no other ambition in life. They sat around, played video games, and, and, and smoked dope, did uh, cocaine and meth, and and from behind prison walls, John Anderson was penning hauntingly obsessive letters to Rachel. I don't know any other way of showing you that you are so special to me 
I would murder a million people if I had to, just to be with you. Bill was shaken with worry and confronted his wayward daughter. She kept talking about how she saw the good in him and he wasn't what people think he is. You referred to John as being her bad boy, like every girl yeah. dates a bad boy and that's how you, that's what I thought. I thought this is her, her bad boy. This is not a guy you want to date. This is not a guy you want to mess with. He really didn't have a conscience. He always had guns with him. He was very violent. Police say Anderson was dangerously jealous and possessive. Reportedly so jealous, he sniffed Rachel's clothing and hair for the scent of other men. Her sister Megan saw bruises on Rachel and suspected Anderson had beaten her. I was like just shaking her and yelling at her saying, Rachel, what are you doing? Look at yourself. As friends would describe it, Rachel found herself trapped on a love-hate roller coaster with Anderson. Each day a tumultuous ride from tenderness to torment and back again. She had finally had enough. Much to the joy of the Berkheimer family, Rachel reclaimed her senses. She cut it off with Anderson and reestablished family ties. And she made a new friend with whom she forged a seemingly unbreakable pact. One morning, a beautiful sunny morning, she's sitting on our porch and she has this radiance again that I've not seen for a few months. And she looked up and said, I have met the, an incredible friend. His name is Maurice. Maurice Rivas was 18 years old. He also grew up in a troubled home. I think his closest relative was a grandmother. He was in the foster kid system. For, for several years. But Maurice and Rachel had bonded in their desire to escape the empty, aimless lives of the gang. She said, we've decided we're gonna go back to school. We're gonna go graduate. We're gonna walk with our class and we're gonna do it right. The two vowed to leave the gang life behind, go back to school, get jobs and take care of each other. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I've never met this young man. I'm glad he's inspired her. This is a friendship I really would like to, to nourish. Hard as she tried, Rachel seemed obsessed with Anderson. She rekindled an on-again, off-again romance with the petty criminal. In fact, Rachel jumped back in the fire with both feet. During an off period with Anderson, she dated one of his best friends. Rachel naively saw no harm in her actions. On a crisp September evening, Rachel attended a party at this Everett duplex with seven members of the Northwest Mafia. She felt safe in the company of her friend Maurice Rivas, who had not yet pried himself away from the gang either. Four of them, including John Anderson and Rachel's good friend Maurice Rivas, the friend who had once vowed to protect her, drive 30 miles into the mountains. Rachel's fate had been sealed. The plan was to kill her. Anderson and two others leave to go get shovels and other supplies. Then Rachel watches in agony and terror as her own grave is dug. It's crushing to imagine such a heinous death march and what Rachel endured in these final moments. But soon her living hell would be over. At the hands of this maniacal on-again, off-again boyfriend, John Anderson. And there you have it. Again, I have just shared this story in part and partial, what was needed for this podcast for you to get an idea of what was going on in her life. The story of Rachel Berkheimer is about a young girl in her teens 
who had suffered great loss and was grieving and started to spiral, got mixed up in the wrong crowd. There were drugs involved and she had an attraction for a bad boy. Actually, she got involved with a couple of bad boys, one of them who didn't present himself to be a bad boy, but in the end, he was a coward. And you can actually listen to an interview where he admits to having been a coward and that it was a very senseless murder, whereas John Anderson taunted the family while they were in trial, smiled at them, winked at them, because the dude's got no conscience. How on earth could she have gotten tangled up with these guys? Well, she was just in a very vulnerable place, and they knew it. And then at some point, through drugs and what have you, John Anderson decided that she was betraying them somehow. So they beat her, tied her up, put her in the garage. They thought about maybe gang raping her or maybe taking her to a hotel and let her heal up and then let her go. But they decided in the end, the best thing to do was just kill her. So that's what they did. Hybristophilia cost her her life. She was, for whatever reasons, that she was attracted to these guys in the end, she was buried after being stripped down naked and shot several times after watching them dig her grave. I cannot even imagine the horror and especially what that family has been through. So ladies, if you're attracted to the bad boys and you think you're going to change them, you're thinking to yourself that you just want to nurture that wounded little boy that's still inside, there's a good chance that's not going to turn out well for you. And I'm not trying to sound too harsh. I've been in prison ministry for the last 10 years, and I'm well aware that there are people who turn their lives around, and it is through the help of others that they're able to do that. I believe in second chances and in forgiveness. But we have got to use our common sense. Ladies, be careful. This is a real thing. Alrighty, so let's get back to the Wikipedia account of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. And then I promised you that I was going to tell you what Sean Penn said to Richard Ramirez when they were both incarcerated at San Quentin and Richard Ramirez wanted his autograph and then he wrote him a note and Sean Penn wrote him back. Well, what the heck does Sean Penn have to say to a serial killer? Well, we'll find out. We'll talk about that here in a little bit, but let's get back to Wikipedia right now. So after the murder of Elias Abawath and then the rape and the sodomizing of his wife, Sakina, who was a brand new mother who had a 10-week-old baby next to her bed, and he ripped off her nursing bra in her nighty and just had his way with her, which just makes my blood curdle. Well, it says that Richard Ramirez left Los Angeles and headed to the San Francisco Bay Area on August 18, 1985. He entered the home of Peter and Barbara Pan. He shot the sleeping Peter, 66, in the temple with a 25 caliber handgun. He then beat and sexually assaulted Barbara, 62, before shooting her in the head and leaving her for dead. At the crime scene, Ramirez used lipstick to scrawl a pentagram and the phrase, Jack the Knife, on the bedroom wall. 
when it was discovered that the ballistics and shoe print evidence from the Los Angeles crime scenes matched the Pan crime scene. San Francisco's then-mayor, Diane Feinstein, divulged the information in a televised press conference. This leak infuriated the detectives in the case, as they knew the killer would be following media coverage, which gave him opportunity to destroy crucial forensic evidence. Ramirez, who had indeed been watching the press, dropped his size 11 and a half AVS sneakers over the side of the Golden Gate Bridge that night. He remained in the area for a few more days before heading back to the Los Angeles area. On August 24th of 85, Ramirez traveled 76 miles south of Los Angeles in a stolen orange Toyota to Mission Viejo. That night, he arrived at the home of James Romero Jr., who had just returned from a family vacation to Rosarita Beach in Mexico. Romero's son, 13-year-old James Romero III, happened to be awake and heard Ramirez's footsteps outside the house. Thinking there was a prowler, James went to wake his parents and Ramirez fled the scene. James raced outside and noticed the color, make, and style of the car. As well as a partial license plate number, Romero contacted the police with this information, believing James had chased away a thief. After the encounter, Ramirez broke into the house of Bill Carnes, 30, and his fiancée, Inez Erickson, 29, through a back door. Ramirez entered the sleeping couple's bedroom and awakened Carnes when he cocked his 25 caliber handgun. He shot Carnes three times in the head before turning his attention to Erickson. Ramirez told the terrified woman that he was the night stalker and he forced her to swear she loved Satan as he beat her with his fists and bound her with neckties from the closet. After stealing what he could find, Ramirez dragged Erickson to another room to rape and sodomize her. He then demanded cash and more jewelry and made her swear on Satan that there was no more. Before leaving the home, Ramirez told Erickson, Tell them the Night Stalker was here. Now, I watched a documentary and it had Mr. Carnes visiting with a couple of Richard Ramirez's family members. One was his niece, who had also had some pretty negative run-ins with him when she visited him in prison. And eventually, she just quit going. But anyway, they wanted to take some sort of responsibility or apologize for him, for lack of a better way to articulate that. But Mr. Carnes was very reluctant to meet with them. But after having done so, he said that he felt so much better and he felt like he was beginning a, a deeper level of a healing journey. Unfortunately, this whole attack against him and his girlfriend wound up ending their relationship. That's just a little bit of extra information that is not on the Wikipedia site. Anyway, after the attack, Erickson gave a detailed description of the assailant to investigators and police obtained a cast of Ramirez's footprint from the Romero house. The stolen car was found on August 28th in Wilshire Center, Los Angeles, and police obtained a single fingerprint from the rearview mirror despite Ramirez's careful efforts to wipe the car clean of his prints. The print was positively identified as belonging to Ramirez, who was described as a 25-year-old drifter from Texas, 
with a long rap sheet that included many arrests for traffic and illegal drug violations. Law enforcement officials decided to release to the media a mug shot of Ramirez from a December 12, 1984 arrest for car theft. And the Night Stalker finally had a face. At the police press conference, it was announced, We know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. On August 30th at 85, Ramirez took a bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother, unaware that he had become the lead story in virtually every major newspaper and television news program across California. After failing to meet his brother, he returned to Los Angeles early on the morning of August 31st. He walked past police officers who were staking out the bus terminal in hopes of catching the killer should he attempt to flee on an outbound bus to a convenience store in East Los Angeles. After noticing a group of elderly Mexican women fearfully identifying him as El Matador or The Killer, Ramirez saw his face on the front pages on the newspaper rack and fled the store in a panic. After running across the Santa Ana freeway, he attempted to carjack a woman but was chased away by bystanders who pursued him. After hopping over several fences and attempting two more carjackings, he was eventually subdued by a group of residents, one of whom had struck him over the head with a metal bar in the pursuit. The group held Ramirez down and relentlessly beat him until the police arrived and took him into custody. Jury selection for the trial began on July 22nd of 1988. At his first court appearance, Ramirez raised a hand with a pentagram drawn on it and yelled, Hail Satan! On August 3rd, 88, the Los Angeles Times reported that some jail employees overheard Ramirez planning to shoot the prosecutor with a gun, which Ramirez intended to have smuggled into the courtroom. Consequently, a metal detector was installed outside and intensive searches were conducted on people entering. On August 14th, the trial was interrupted because one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary, did not arrive at the courtroom. Later that day, she was found shot to death in her apartment. The jury was terrified. They could not help wondering whether Ramirez had somehow directed this event from inside his prison cell and whether he could reach other jurors. However, it was ultimately determined that Ramirez was not responsible for Singletary's death as she was shot and killed by her boyfriend, who later committed suicide with the same weapon in a hotel. The alternate juror who replaced Singletary was too frightened to return to her home. September 20th, 89, Ramirez was convicted of all charges. 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. During the penalty phase of the trial on November 7th of 89, he was sentenced to die in California's gas chamber. He stated to reporters after the death sentences, Big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. The trial cost $1.8 million, which would be about $3.7 million as of 2019, which at the time made it the most expensive in the history of California until surpassed by the O.J. Simpson murder case in 94. By the time of the trial, Ramirez had fans who were writing him letters and paying him visits. Beginning in 85, Doreen Loy 
Leoy, I don't know how you say her name. Anyway, she wrote him nearly 75 letters during his incarceration. And then in 88, Ramirez proposed to Loy, and on October 3rd of 96, they were married in California's San Quentin State Prison. However, she eventually left Ramirez. By the time of his death, Ramirez was engaged to a 23-year-old female writer. By some estimates, he would have been in his early 70s before his execution was carried out due to California's lengthy appeals process. Ramirez had scored 31 of 40 on Hare's psychopathy checklist, which makes him a primary psychopath. However, he may have well leaned towards sociopathy instead. Ramirez might have also met the criteria of a malignant narcissist, but there isn't any current evidence as of 2020 that suggests that he had narcissistic personality disorder mixed with antisocial traits. Antisocial personality disorder is the dominant disorder in Ramirez's case, and due to the nature of his crimes, he may have had ASPD mixed with sadism and schizoid traits. He may have also suffered from schizophrenia as well, which was likely made worse by drugs like cocaine and LSD and PCP. Ramirez died of complications secondary to B-cell lymphoma at Marin General Hospital in Greed Ray, California, June 7th of 2013. He had also been affected by chronic substance abuse and chronic hepatitis C viral infection. At 53 years old, he had been on death row for more than 23 years. And, not in the Wikipedia account, but I have read this. He was as green as a green highlighter upon his death. Supposing that has to do with liver failure. Now, I read a couple of books, and I will put links to those books on Amazon, and you can get those copies and read the story for yourself. One of those books by Philip Carlo is called The Life and Crimes of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, and then also The Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez by P.J. Varley. But doggone it, I can't remember which one said that whenever the ladies were crying out, El Matador, and he was running, Richard was running from them, and said he was sticking his tongue out and he was hissing all serpent-like at his pursuers. And then, of course, at the sight of him doing that, the women made the sign of the cross, <laughs> and they looked down and they turned away. They said he looked like a deranged madman like a demon so what are some of the quotes by Richard Ramirez well here's one violent delights tend to have violent ends there's blood behind the night stalker give me your gun I'll take care of myself you know I'm the killer so shoot me I deserve to die you can see Satan on my arm all the killings are going to be blamed on me you know who I am don't you I'm the one they're writing about in the newspapers and on TV. You don't understand me. You are not expected to. You are not capable. I am beyond your experience. I am beyond good and evil. I will be avenged. Lucifer dwells in all of us. I don't believe in the hypocritical moralistic dogma of this so-called civilized society. You maggots make me sick. 
hypocrites, one and all. I don't need to hear all of the society's rationalizations. I've heard them all before. Legions of the night, night breed, repeat not the errors of the night prowler and show no mercy. Even psychopaths have emotions. Then again, maybe not. Serial killers do on a small scale what governments do on a large one. They are products of our times and these are bloodthirsty times. Satanists need to have more faith than Christians because Christ was seen and felt. Lucifer has never felt the need to be seen, but in everyone's soul, he can be felt. I've killed 20 people, man. I love all that blood. Everybody's got good and evil in them. I'd like to be 100% evil, but I can't. I'm too easygoing sometimes. Then again, while anger and hate are two things some people could cope with, I cannot. My anger and hate grow to a level that I cannot live comfortably with it. Alrighty, so what's the deal with Sean Penn that I've been talking about? In 87, while he was being held for his crimes but had not gone to trial, he encountered the actor Sean Penn, who had been sentenced to 60 days in prison for reckless driving and also for assaulting an extra on the set of a film that he was working on. I mean, we all know he's a bit of a bad boy himself. Anyway, Ramirez asked a guard to request an autograph from Penn, and after receiving it, Ramirez wrote Penn a letter which read, Hey, Sean, stay tough and hit him again. Richard Ramirez, 666. Penn replied to the Night Stalker's letter saying, You know, Richard, it's impossible to be incarcerated and not feel a certain kinship with your fellow inmates. Well, Richard, I've done the impossible. I feel absolutely no kinship with you, and I hope gas descends on you before sanity does. You know? My gosh, Sean, a bit harsh, aren't we? He's just a cowardly serial killer who adores you. And then in Richard Ramirez's final interview, given just months before his death in 2013, he spoke of his admiration for the actor Ted Levine who played the part of the serial killer Buffalo Bill, who kidnaps and skins women in the 91 thriller Silence of the Lambs. Upon hearing of the killer's admiration shortly after Ramirez's death, Levine reacted with anger and revulsion, telling the New York Post, and I'm going to bring this first word down just a level, screw him, I hope he's in hell, that's all I have to say about Richard Ramirez. All right, everybody, I am Kimberly with Breadcrumbs and Bloodhounds, and this is going to be a wrap on the Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker case. This is segment two of two. Last night, my husband and I watched the movie The Hunt. I was not that eager at first, but it said that it was a comedy, and I thought, well, you know, after all this negative news and everything going on in the world today, Why not? I'll give it a shot. And the movie referenced the book, The Animal Farm, which I read many years ago. And it's about animals who wound up taking over a farm, getting rid of the humans and taking over a farm. And how that you just can't help yourself by having these political factions or whatever in whatever community that you're in. Despite how much you say that there's going to be equal treatment for everybody. But anyway, it's a pretty good book. It's pretty interesting. You ought to read it. But 
After watching the movie, I couldn't help but think that while this was posed as fiction, you know, it could very well desensitize people to the fact that this stuff really does happen. I know it was tongue-in-cheek movie, but this stuff really does happen. Case in point, Robert Hansen, serial killer who took women out to the wilderness in Alaska, turned them loose, and hunted them. Robert, I cannot even believe his middle name is Christian Hansen. He was born February 15th of 39, died August 21st of 2014. He was known in the media as the Butcher Baker. He was an American serial killer between 71 and 83. Hansen abducted, raped, and murdered at least 17 women in and around Anchorage, Alaska. And he hunted many of them down in the wilderness with a Ruger Mini 14 and a knife. He was arrested and convicted in 83, sentenced to 461 years and a life sentence without the possibility of parole. That's Robert Hansen. That's going to be my next case coming up. If you want to follow me at redroofstudios.org. Well, the next time I post something, you'll be notified. And I'm also on Spotify and Stitcher. Okay, cheers. <laughs>